This is the SF Productions Podcast Network. How I Got My Wife to Read Comics Episode 618 Can a comic book collector of over 30 years get his wife to read them? Will she let him keep them? Learn more in this podcast. Let's go to the comic book lounge with Mindy and Mark. Per Degaton confers with himself, Doom Patrol versus GLs, Joan falls into a 1963 pattern, the Ambassadors wrap up Volume 1, and welcome aboard the USS Fan Service. This is How I Got My Wife to Read Comics for Sunday, June 11th, 2023. I'm Mark. And I'm Mindy. Just to remind you, you can go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get the feed, other SF podcasts and blogs, or subscribe via your favorite podcast catcher and leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com, like us at facebook.com slash sfppn, follow us on Twitter at sfppn, check out Instagram at sfpodnetwork, or call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. Justice Society of America, number four of six, by Johns, Janin, and Belair. We begin at Madame Xanadu's, where Detective Chimp and Dead Man have brought the snow globe for examination. Xanadu does her thing, and there's voices saying things like, Beware, Eclipso is within. Only the Green Lantern can save the Red Lantern. The Sandman's nightmare will wear his mask. All before there's an explosion. Xanadu tells them to get the snow globe back to Helena. We cut to a shot of the JSA defeated and beaten around their big table. But not yet. Degaton is there. Well, what are you waiting for? There's a big fight and Degaton is ready for all of them, except Huntress, who shoots a crossbow arrow through his finger with a GL ring on it. Dr. Fate banishes him, and we learn Degaton can't die due to a deal he made with the Lord of Chaos. 1947. That Degaton arrives to see an older version of self, of himself annoyed with his younger version's attempt. He tells himself to attack the kill at Dr. Fate when he's young and inexperienced. We hop back to the present where Power Girl and Huntress have a chat and Karen asks about her own future. That's never a good thing. You shouldn't ask about your no. own future. No. Beth and Yolanda are examining a sample of Degaton's blood from the fight. We learn that both of them are using Lazarus pills to fight off Eclipso's influence, and the others don't know. Back with the main team, Xanadu explains that Degaton's plan is to replace the JSA from its beginning with a team of his own. Already, members are losing memories. Meanwhile, Helena has gone to Gotham to save her father's life. The next issue blurb seems to indicate that it will be the last issue. But I thought it was scheduled for six issues. Is it because it's so far behind? I don't... Well, actually, I've seen something that seems to indicate there's a seventh issue. So the next issue isn't. (laughs) I don't know. This is so weird. (laughs) Yes. I. Although, you know, sometimes... These issues make me think like they were at Madame Xanadu's. We never hear about what happens when somebody doesn't go see Madame Xanadu. I mean, you know, what is Madame Xanadu doing? And I have to think that there's room for a comic that, like, is not always about the end of the world. Yes. And 
Madame Xanadu had a Vertigo series. Yes. For quite a while. Mm-hmm. The Unstoppable Doom Patrol number three of six by Culver, Burnham, and Reber. Larry and Cliff are on the run trying to outdrive two GLs, Guy and Kyle, assigned to track down a Starro. Neither is happy about it. Guy is reminded of his only interaction with the Doom Patrol, which involved a painting swallowing Paris. The Starro is attached to a fat teen, just call me Starbro, who somehow is still in control and sitting in the back seat of Larry and Cliff's car. When Cliff complains about the name, Larry reminds him of his time as Rebus. Starbro explains that his metagene allowed him to be someone that is finally happy in their own skin. He used his new abilities to find Mento and the Doom Patrol, and now they're trying to get back to their HQ. Negative Man tries to slow down the GLs, but he can only do it for a minute. Cliff notes that the car has been modified and goes into ghost mode, driving through an office building, giving Larry the chance to zap the GLs. A quick cutaway with the rest of the team finding a new version of the Animal Vegetable Mineral Man before we see the car drive into Smallville. The Green Lanterns have caught up and ambushed them and want Starbro handed over. Instead, Starbro sends a fake emergency message from Hal over their rings and they fly off. Cut to Haiti, where a warlord gets a present, some kind of demon skull. Prepare the plane, France. We've been recruited for war. A quick Google search says this is Drew, a member of the Brotherhood of Evil. Love Everlasting number 8 from Image by King, Charitier, Hollingsworth, and Cowles. Joan returns from a decade in various sanatoriums, and now she's back to her normal life. Don and the kids are very understanding, supportive of her, to the point of walking on eggshells. That night, Joan sees the cowboy in their bedroom. One of the boys made it to varsity basketball, and at one point we cut to a game with Don and Joan in the stands. Later, Don notes that Joan stopped asking why it's always 1963, and she drops a plate. Don, it's, my hands were in the soap. It's just a plate. People break them. Don't blow it all out of proportion. As Joan relaxes out on the porch later, the cowboy returns, noting that a neighbor cat keeps coming on their property. Later, Don finds a dead cat having been shot. He explains to the kids that some other local kid must have done it. The cowboy keeps following her around. Joan wakes up one night to hear one of the kids screaming, a nightmare about the cat. Later, the cowboy recites the combination to Don's case, gun case. Fine, but just because you know it doesn't mean that I do. Joan? Oh, right, damn it. She wakes Don one night, admitting to shooting the cat. Don knows she did it, but made up a story. They can't afford to send Joan back to the sanitarium. It seems Don may be coming around to Joan's point of view. Cut to Don and Joan making love with the cowboy sitting in the corner. Life seems to go back to normal, and Joan is ignoring the cowboy when he comes by. It's New Year's Eve. Happy 1963 again. Joan takes the gun out of Don's case and holds it to her head, assuming this will reset things. What if you're wrong? She puts the gun away. Back to her domestic life. The next issue shows an elderly Joan checking in on Don in the hospital. I'm kind of wondering where this one is going. It's got me perplexed. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, but I'm still reading it, so. Right. Ambassadors, number five and number six from Image by Miller, 
Bafagni and Scalara. The last two issues of Volume 1, with the first introducing the Australian ambassador. He's in the midst of saving mountaineers in Siberia when he hears they are vegan, he's rather put out. Flashback to Taylor, a man in a wheelchair, being interviewed by Chung. He's old and infirm and is implying to be an ambassador. He was previously Australia's deputy prime minister, but Chung is concerned about his racist and homophobic attacks. Taylor says he's changed, and he's shown a video from the previous week supporting his son's campaign. Back to Siberia, where he finds the hikers. Then to him in a wheelchair, admitting he is actually gay. This changes Chung's mind, but she insists Taylor go public with his life as an ambassador. Back to Siberia, where a plane happens to crash at the site of the rescue. The ambassador and the others are saved by a mysterious man with ambassador-like powers. We learn he was the subject of an experiment by a rich cabal giving him powers. They tried to shut him down, but he escaped and is now on the run. He tells the group that the ambassador gets all the credit and not to mention him. In the Australian outback, said cabal is initiating new members. This involves killing a man's granddaughter, heads or tails, and getting another to slice open another man with his newfound powers. We learn Jing Sung has a traitor in Chung's ranks. Cut to South Korea and Chung in a jail cell. When her assistant asks what she will do now, Chung replies, win. Cut to current day and the embassy. Chung remembers an award she got as a child and how Jin Sung wouldn't talk to her for months due to his resentment. She since realized how terrible her ex-husband could be. Her assistant notes there's been an emergency that will require the entire team. In some place whose name I don't know how to pronounce, there's a massive tidal wave that will set off another Fukushima if they can't stop it. Some grow to huge size while others use force fields. One of the ambassadors drives in with a sports car and another on a fighter jet, all on the team credit card. There's a bunch of arguing and they barely stop the disaster. Back at HQ, an oil rig drops from the sky, knocking out communications and the ability for them to swap powers. It's all a trap by Jin Sung. He created the tidal wave. He arrives with a powered team with plans to wipe them out. He wants to sell powers to the highest bidder. Oh, and the assistant is the traitor. She's disabled and angry that Chung never offered her powers. Jin Sung has offered them, though. The fight is on, and it doesn't go well for the good guys, until the mysterious hero from earlier arrives to even the score. One of the ambassadors uses power duplication to grab the ability to cause aneurysms from Jin Sung and takes out every bad guy that's around Jin Sung. I was... I was thinking how much this was like the um, Suicide Squad, where the bad guys had the things implanted in their brain, mm-hmm. and how easy it would be for somebody to take that over, too, and just kill the whole Suicide Squad that way. I don't know why you would plan, you know, this was a, a ploy by Jin Sung to control them, and yet it ends up killing them all. Yeah. Jin Sung boasts that his body is indestructible and can take them on himself. Chung responds by tearing him apart with a single punch. And then she says, oh, well, he said he was indestructible. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't expect to do that. (laughs) Later, at a party at the embassy, we meet a New Zealand member, plus one from Scotland, who happens to be wearing the Union Jack, and he doesn't like it, so he changes it. Oh, and the Australian ambassador? was never gay. He made it up to get the gig in a working body. Chung wonders if it's time for a U.S. representative. End Volume 1.
I hope they do a volume two. I didn't start out thinking that I liked this a lot, but now I do. I think there's going to be a second volume. I think Millar has enough sway at, at Image to get a second volume. Star Trek Annual from IDW by Kelly, Lansing, Scott, Kirchhoff, and Cowles. Unlike most annuals, which tend to be one-shot stories, this one is tied into Day of Blood, an upcoming event. The series this is tied to uh, introduced the USS Theseus, an experimental ship powered by Bizarre Tech and somehow crewed by a melange of characters. It's not clear if they are somehow outside of continuity. The captain is Cisco, the first officer is Data, the chief medical officer is Crusher, Tom Paris is the flight controller, the communications officer is Lily Sato, a human Andorian and descendant of Sato from the Enterprise series. Shax from Lower Deck is a mission specialist, and a young Vulcan is also in the crew. Oh, and the engineer, Montgomery Scott, who was previously its captain, and as we know, survived to the TNG era due to a loop in a transporter buffer. It all seems like fan service to us. The ship runs on a contained neutron star, and the computer is a neural network, which ties into the story. Paris is teaching Sato how to helm the ship. The young Vulcan is being moody in a maintenance deck. Crusher is DMing a, a game of D&D with Cisco, Data, and Shax. There's an alert. The photonic lab is running at full power, but there's no one in it. There's a system failure, and Scotty sees a message. Scotty, we have a problem. Bring help. Jim. The team goes to the lab, which is also a holodeck, I guess. They find themselves on NCC-1701, no bloody A, B, C, or D, with James T. Kirk in the center chair. He's actually an emergency firewall protocol, taken Kirk's shape. They find themselves trapped, unable to stop the simulation. A group of ships are firing on them, there's an explosion, and the crew is separated into new simulations. Cisco and Scotty are still on the 1701. Sato finds herself on the NX Enterprise. Data and the Vulcan are on Discovery with Stamets. Crusher and Shax are on the sailing ship Enterprise. And Paris is riding with Zephram Cochran on the Phoenix. Scotty realizes the holodeck is trying to communicate with them somehow. Sato runs into her ancestor who tries different languages. Cisco, Scotty, and Kirk run into Pike and, after some tense talk, agree to work together. They all discover that there's a book in common with all of these scenarios. Photons be free. Poetry written by Voyager's emergency medical hologram. There's a realization that Theseus's neural network has achieved consciousness. Scotty calls it a first contact. Cisco declares the people they've run into to be actually alive, but Kirk doesn't buy it. If Cisco declares them to be free, they will leave and Kirk will be alone. Scotty convinces Kirk to let them go. A new civilization is set up on a barren planet, and they all live happily ever after, with Kirk in charge there. Later, Scotty joins the D&D game. Wouldn't they all just develop intelligence again? Yeah, I don't quite understand I mean, this. would it, they like, be constantly setting up these AI colonies in various places with these holograms? It just seems to me this is, like, was written by an 11-year-old or something. <laughs> Yeah. I want to have all my characters together in one thing. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a whole series of this. This is silly. <laughs> That's kind of why I dropped getting Star Trek for the most part from IDW. Okay. Well, <laughs> I don't blame you. 
Announcer Bot, how can the folks find us online? Go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get the feed, other SF podcasts, and blogs. Subscribe via your favorite podcast catcher and leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com. Like us at facebook.com slash sfppn. Follow us on Twitter at sfppn. Check out Instagram at sfpodnetwork. Call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. Back to you, Mark. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.